guys are a little bit more relaxed in here. The first service was kind of like getting to be standing room only kind of seating in here this morning. It's um, great to see everybody back all tanned and everything as the summer's winding down, but it's um, great to be able to worship the Lord here together. We're going to um, proceed. We're going to jump right into the book of Amos this morning. If you're newer here, I want to welcome you, but we've been studying the book of Amos, which is not one of the most um, popular or well-known books of the Bible. I hope for those who have been coming out that you're learning a lot from it, and God is teaching you as we go through this um, really interesting book. But I'm going to um, pray for us, and then uh, I'd like to ask, as when I finish praying, if the ushers would hand out Bibles. If you don't have a Bible here this morning, most of the Scripture will be on the screen. But if you would like to have a Bible, just raise your hand after our prayer, and our ushers will be glad to get one to you. So let's, um, would you join with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as a church family and to open your word and to study it together. And Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds and transform our hearts and minds through your word, God. I pray that as we study the book of Amos, Lord, that you would help these truths of thousands of years ago to come alive within our hearts and minds and help us to, Lord, draw from this the applications that you would want us to take away. And Father, I pray that we would then apply those things to our lives and allow ourselves to be changed and become more like Jesus Christ. Thank you for the worship time we've had this morning and the opportunity to sing our praises to you. And Father, I pray that our worship would be pleasing to you. God, we thank you for this time and we pray that you would do a great work here among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 8. We're going to begin um, in verse 1 as we study. The, we're going to go through the whole chapter of chapter 8 this morning. And I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 3. So Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And we need a Bible up in the front row up here too. <laughs> so, okay, let's begin in verse 1. Thus the Lord God showed me and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. He said, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord God. Many will be the corpses in every place. They will cast them forth in silence." What we see here is a little bit of a doom and gloom at the end of um, the, in, chapter, in verse 3, but God starts out giving Amos a vision, and if you were here last week, the, word, the opening phrase there in verse 1, where it says, God so, showed me, and behold. Um, if you were here last week, some of you may remember that phrase. Others of you are trying to remember that it was Amos we studied last week, and uh, others are probably just trying to figure out if they were here last week. But um, in chapter 7, God gave the prophet Amos three visions, and all three of those visions began with the phrase, and behold, and there was. And what we see here is that this is kind of God's way, Amos's way, too, of getting our attention. And when Amos communicated this to his audience, what he was saying was, this vision I'm about to tell you about was not mine. God gave this to me, so what I'm about to share with you is the very Word of God, so you need to pay attention to this. And that was how Amos started out each of these four visions, and this is the fourth one that we're looking at this morning. 
And God starts out with a question. And he says to Amos, Amos, what do you see? Now, could you picture Amos? He, here he is getting this vision from God. And all of a sudden, God asks him this question, what do you see? And Amos looks, and all he sees is this basket of fruit. And Amos is probably thinking to himself, is this a trick question? Is there something deeper here that I'm missing? And Amos probably replied something like, Lord, a basket of summer fruit? And God was basically saying, exactly, Amos, a basket of summer fruit. Now, I'll help to understand what summer fruit was. Summer fruit was the fruit that came at the very end of the harvest season in the summer, and it, it actually it kind of ripened very quickly. So not only did it ripen quickly, but it rotted very quickly too. So in ancient Israel, they would have understood that this is a very ripe basket of fruit, and it's about to turn rotten quickly. So in the harvest season, at the end of the harvest season, the Israelites knew they had to harvest quickly, and they had to consume it quickly because it didn't last. Now, there's a wordplay that's taking place in this section as well, because in the Hebrew language, the word for fruit and the word for end were pronounced the same. Very different words, but they were pronounced the same. A lot like our English, think of the English word, we have a number of English words, think of led. You know, he led me to the store, or this is a lead pencil. We say it the same, but very different meanings, so... What God was basically saying here to Amos was, yes, you see a basket of fruit, but the end is very near. And basically saying that the nation of Israel had become so unfaithful that they were ripe for judgment and the end was coming soon. That's what verse, the verses 1 through 3 are setting us up to, um, for that. And God is drawing our attention to the spiritual unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel. Now, one of the things I think we tend to do, especially in a book like the prophets, we tend to look at the prophets and think, you know, eh, it was 2,700 years ago, there's these guys walking around in these dusty old cloaks and they're wandering around in the desert. What does that have to do with me today? Um, and then when we hear their prophetic messages, they're kind of like apocalyptic and they sound kind of severe or bizarre and, you know, we don't really relate to them. And if we think about judgment, we tend to push it off to someone else and think, oh, man, does our nation need judgment today? You know? Now, I want to challenge us in our thinking. And I want to also set something straight, especially in a political season. We kind of hear about, oh, the demise of the country and every politician's out there saying, well, I'm going to turn our country back to the right direction again. And I want to say that we're sinners. We're a nation made up of sinners. Our world is a world full of sinners. And we were really never headed in the right direction in the first place because every generation before Christ and every generation after Christ has pretty much wandered away from God and gone our own way. And every generation before Christ, every generation since has been ripe for God's judgment. And I will tell you, one of the things that we can be thankful for is the patience of our God. When we see the unfaithfulness of society generation after generation, and God brought us the beautiful message of the gospel, and he's delaying his judgment to give us the opportunity to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But as we go through Amos, I want to make my first point for this morning this. Be aware of your own spiritual unfaithfulness. 
don't think about, well, you know what, our community out there, they need God's, you know, they need God's judgment or they're deserving of God's judgment. Maybe our nation is deserving, our world is, judging, is deserving of it. What I want you to do is to look inside your own heart and allow God to shine his light into your heart so that you can recognize your own unfaithfulness and where you have wandered away from the Lord in your daily life and how you need to be turned back to God because we all tend to wander our own way and pursue the things that we want to pursue rather than the things that God wants us to be pursuing. As we go on, one of the things um, I'd like to draw your attention to is the word, the gospel. Um, this morning, just in some of the prayer times and some of the songs, I, I noticed that the, the gospel came up in those songs and it came up in, our, in the prayer times leading up to this. And I was thinking, wow, they, you know, they must have known what today's sermon was all about, the way they went about planning, what they prayed and what they shared. But the gospel is so profound, but we hear it a lot today. It's almost become like a Christian buzzword. Uh, we hear, you know, you may, some of you may not be familiar with these terms, but they'll say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. And then we are in this phase now, too, where there's so many books and things that are out there with the word gospel in them. And it's almost like we can say gospel with a hyphen and another word after it, and we're going to sell tens of thousands of books by doing so. We have the gospel-centered life. We have the gospel church. We have gospel community. We have probably have gospel ice cream. You see, there's so much gospel with something after it that it's a little bit of a fad. I was reading a blog the other day, and it brought this up, and it was saying that, you know, probably 10 to 15 years from now, we are not going to hear the word gospel nearly as much as we do today. Something else will come in its place. But here's what I want to say. The gospel is the foundation of Christianity, and the gospel will never lose its power and it's as powerful a thousand years ago, 200 years ago, as it is today, as it will be going forward. Because what the gospel is, is God's way. You see, mankind sinned all the way back to Adam and Eve, and God brought his judgment upon us. We were all going to be judged because we were all, were all sinners. And God knew that situation, so mankind and the creation itself was cursed. So God in all of his glory and all of his graciousness, God sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, to the earth, took on the form of a man, lived on this earth, went to a cross, died a horrible death to gain us victory over sin and death. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for you. He earned you your righteousness. All you need to do is trust him because you can't earn it. See, with the gospel message, you can stop striving because Jesus has done it all. See, that's the gospel, is that we can have a relationship with God and eternal life and live our lives daily through the power of Jesus Christ because of what he did for us. Now, I wanted to um, share, I, I found a definition of the gospel-centered life that I wanted to share with you. And think about this in terms of what I just said. It says, a life where you experience a growing personal reliance on the gospel that keeps you from depending on your own religious performance and being seduced and overwhelmed by idols. Now, let's unpack that because this is going to lead us right into where we're going in the book of Amos this morning. It says again, it's a, a life where you experience a growing, okay, it's not stagnant, 
You're growing. doesn't mean that you can now, because Jesus did all the work for you, that you can be complacent and do what you want. It says here, it's a growing personal reliance. I love that word reliance because what it shows us is we can't earn God's favor. Can't do it. All that we need to do is to rely upon Jesus Christ for what he already did for you. A growing personal reliance on the gospel. Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That keeps you from depending on your own religious performance. See, you can serve here at this church all you want, and you're not going to earn God's favor. See, you all could sign up. By the way, um, Janet Miller missed the first service. And I went outside during, between services and he said, Bob, I have no idea what you said to them in the first service, but say it again because they're coming down here by signing up to be bus monitors and all kinds of things. <laughs> now, you know what? Um, I want to encourage you. We need people to do those things. But you see, you could sign up to be a bus monitor. You can serve here as an elder. You could teach Sunday school. You could do all kinds of things at Bible Fellowship Church, and it doesn't earn you God's favor. But does that mean we want you to stop doing it? No. And you know why? Here's why. Because as the gospel gets a hold of you and your heart is transformed by the gospel, what ends up happening is now your service is an outflow of gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done for you. And all of a sudden, the things of God become so much more important in your life. And the things of this world take much lesser significance in your life. And as we serve, our service becomes a joyful outflowing of what God is doing within us. You see, that's the fruit of the gospel. And it says, so you're no longer depending on your own religious performance and being seduced and overwhelmed by idols. Now, sometimes you think about an idol, it's, you know, it's this little wooden guy, you pull out of the closet, you light some candles, and you bow down and worship him, and you think, Pastor Bob, I don't have an idol. Well, guess what? You don't have a little wooden idol, but you have an idol. We all do. You see, idols are things that we, take, we place in our lives and give them a priority over and above Jesus Christ. And now we start investing our time and our energy, our resources and finances towards whatever that idol it is that we're pursuing. And it replaces Jesus Christ in the place that he should have in our lives. And you see, when we then understand the gospel, we grasp it, we allow it to transform us, we see that Jesus is taking the right place in our lives and idols are no longer taking control over us. And we're going to see how that happens here as we go through this um, chapter 8 of Amos because the people in Amos's day were really guilty of moving away from the Lord and following after the things of this world. I'm going to start in verse and we're going to see what happens here. Beginning in verse 4. Hear this, you who trample the needy to do away with the humble of the land, saying, when the new moon will be over, when will the new moon be over, so that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may open the wheat market, to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger, and to cheat with dishonest scales." so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds. 
Because of this, will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn? Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile, and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. We see a really difficult picture here of what was going to be coming. We see there was, they talk about an earthquake, and there was, they know that actually an earthquake did occur, a severe earthquake, not too long after um, the, Amos wrote these things. But we see that Amos is predicting a really, really ugly and difficult time ahead for the nation of Israel because God was bringing his judgment. But as we go through, what we see here is that the people were pursuing other things in their daily lives and giving them preeminence over Jesus, not well, over the Lord. And we see that God was now bringing his judgment because of that unfaithfulness. The point I'd like to make as we look at this section is beware of giving your heart to the things of this world. It's kind of interesting as we look through some of the things that the people in Amos' day were struggling with and that they, they made idols in their lives. They were things that we tend to struggle with today as well if we look around our cultures. See, our temptations are really, they're different from one another. There's things that cause me temptation that might not be, have any impact on your life. There's things that you're tempted by that really maybe no, don't hold a lot of significance for me. All of us probably here have different things that we give into or that we're tempted by. If we think about what kind of temptations hit us today, there's a temptation for financial success. How many people in our culture are chasing after money as their God? And the things that they do are done to make more and more money. For some people, it's prestige. Some people, it's, it's a relationship that they're putting at a, you know, kind of on a pedestal. For people, it could be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be that academic success as a student. Uh, it could be how, God, how people view you as a mom or as a dad. There's so many different things that we can put into our lives that we chase after, and all of a sudden we find ourselves investing into those things, and we're no longer letting our hearts follow Jesus Christ because we've let something else take its place. And I want to encourage us as we go through our lives to recognize what is it that tends to capture your heart? What is it that gets more attention in your life than you really know it should? And be willing to let God shine his light on you for that. Because what happens, there's so many, you know, good things out there in this world, but we can become self-centered rather than Christ-centered. And that's what happened to the nation of Israel. They were clearly guilty of becoming self-centered rather than God-centered. And I want to point out three signs that we can see within the nation of Israel back then that pointed their, to their self-centered living. And the first one is that they put self-centered living before compassion. Now, verse 4, let's go back to verse 4. I'm not going to put this one on the screen, but as we look at verse 4, it says, Hear this, you who trample the needy 
to do away with the humble of the land. Obviously not a good thing. Trampling the needy and doing away with the humble of the land, you can tell right away, okay, not good. You see that the, what happened here with the nation of Israel, not only were they neglecting the poor, it says here they were trampling the needy and doing away with the humble of the land. So we see here that they were pursuing self-gratification at the expense of the needy in the land. We go down to verse 6, and the first part of verse 6 says, so as to buy the helpless for money. By the way, at the end of chapter, verse 5, it talked about that they were cheating in their business practices. Why? So as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Now, so we, we, I mentioned that they were cheating in their business practices, and it says now that they were buying the needy. Well, what they basically were doing, it's indentured slavery. These people couldn't afford food, and they were poor, and they were destitute. So the wealthy of the land were coming along and basically taking them in as slaves to serve them, to provide them with basic necessities. So not only were they neglecting the poor, they were abusing the poor to get themselves further ahead. And then it says here that they would buy them with a pair of sandals. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the ancient, ancient Israel... One of the practices that they did was if you did a business transaction, say I wanted to buy Brett's camel, and Brett said it was going to be $500. Now, I could give him $500. He gives me the camel. They usually did these transactions out by the, like the city gate in the, in, the com, in the common area. And what I would do is, to show that that camel was now mine, I would take my sandal off, and I would give Brett my sandal kind of as a closure to show the deal is done, that camel now belongs to me. Now, probably really glad they don't do that. Any, we don't do that anymore, aren't you? If we did, we'd have to get bigger offering plates to hold all the sandals. But um, this was happening. Was, so now all of a sudden, we see that the Israelites were now, not only were they neglecting people, they were cheating in business, and they were taking on the poor, fellow Israelites, brothers and sisters in Israel, and bringing them in as slaves that they were now abusing. So you can see that God obviously was not going to be favorable to what was going on. I want to take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 15. And as we think about our treatment of the poor, God specified in Deuteronomy chapter 15 his expectations for how they were to handle and treat the poor. I'll put it on the screen, but it's Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 to 11. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him, and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying, the seventh year, the year of remission is near. That's referring to the ancient practice. On the seventh year, they would free those who came into the indentured slavery so that they would go free. He's mentioned here, you know, in the year the remission is near, and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. 
for the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. You see, as you listen to God's ideal in Deuteronomy on how the poor were to be treated, it contrasted so vividly with what was happening in the nation of Israel. And it's clear that God's heart would be grieved because of what was taking place. And what was happening was the Israelites' behavior that we're looking at in Amos was an outflowing from the wickedness that was in their heart. That they had moved that far away from God. They'd moved that far away from God's ideal of how the poor should be treated. Notice in Deuteronomy, he puts a lot of focus on the heart. He said in verse 7, do not let your heart be hardened. And then he goes on basically to say, if your heart is not hardened, I want to say, we know that, we know that we, we're on this side of the cross. If your heart is transformed by the gospel message of Jesus Christ, it's going to lead to a heart of generosity for the poor. You cannot be changed by the gospel and not have your heart changed towards the poor. Because it's a matter of the heart. It goes back in Deuteronomy and talks about the heart as well. He even goes on and he says in verse 10, You shall generously give to him and your heart shall not be grieved. So what God, what God was telling us in Deuteronomy was, yeah, you want to be generous to the poor, but don't be grieved in doing so. Like, are you bitter in giving that you just, you know, you don't want to give? And again, that's that outflow of the heart. Are we doing it out of religious duty? Are we doing it because we are so in love with Jesus Christ that that graciousness is flowing out of us as we help to meet the needs of the poor around us? So we can see this contrast going back and forth. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where Jesus himself said, For where your treasure is, your heart will follow. Notice, he says, where you put your treasure, that's where your heart's going to go. Now, think about today. Um, you know, we, um, we end, may end up investing into a stock. Little, I'll pick, pick Apple stock. You come out and you make a significant investment in Apple stock. Now, what starts happening? You start going to the financial website and you start looking up and seeing how the markets are doing. You want to know how your investment is doing. All of a sudden, you see a, a magazine article or something online about Apple. A month before, I mean, you just would have passed right by it. What happens now? It catches your eye. And you start reading everything you can about Apple because you're financially invested into them as far as the stock goes. Now, what happened if rather than investing into a stock, you were investing your time, energy, and resources into people? What do you think God starts to do to your heart? You know, when you see a need that's around you, and you know, even within our church family, there are so many needs. Between services, somebody came up and told me of someone in our church that has a significant need. And are we going to start meeting the needs when we see them around us? Or is our heart being pulled by the things of this world that we're no longer sensitive to the needs of people around us? What happens if you're watching Fox News or CNN or whatever you're watching, and all of a sudden you see all of this um, turmoil and you see persecution, you see the violence that's taking place, let's say Syria or wherever in the world, does your mind go to realize, wow, think of all the suffering that's taking place over there right now. Do you stop and pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted in other places? 
while we're enjoying air conditioning and coming here with our family and sitting on cushioned chairs. You see, it's so easy for our hearts to be pulled in other directions. But if we start to invest ourselves into the things that God cares about, our hearts start to change along the way. And that's what happened here as we look at the nation of Israel. They had invested their interests in the things of this world. They were cheating in business and doing all these things, and their hearts started to get pulled further away from God. Now, second thing I gave you the first sign was that their self-centered living, um, they put themselves before compassion. The second sign was they put self-centered living before worship. Look at verse 5. It says, I think I have that one on the screen for us, yep saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales? See, he's talking about they were in the context of a religious service. The new moon refers to as the beginning of the month is when the Israelites would gather for their religious celebrations. And that's what the new moon is referring to. And it's saying, when will the new moon be over? When will this guy stop preaching so we can go home and do what we want to do? Um, or, says, and the Sabbath, so that when they open the wheat market. So when will Sunday get over? We wake up in the morning and think, oh, man, it's Sunday. We got to go to church today. You know, think about, you know, we're not like these ancient Israelites, are we? When, when there's preaching going on, you guys are like hanging on every word of the sermon. You see, when we sing the songs of worship, you guys, man, you're, you're reflecting on those words as you sing them, and you're singing a heart of worship, and you're paying attention to the words. You're never thinking about a couple weeks from now on a Sunday morning, who's going to win the Eagles game today? <laughs> you're never thinking, man, what are we having for lunch when we go home? You're not thinking, man, how am I going to do on that test tomorrow that I have at school or that big presentation that I have at work tomorrow? You guys never think about things like that. You see, we're, we're so far beyond the nation of Israel, aren't we? No, you know what? All of us are prone to it. And you know what? We're, our minds are going to wander. I'm not, I don't want to put you on a guilt trip because, you know, we're not perfect. You know, we're, someday we'll be glorified and perfect down here. Our minds will wander. But you see, that's what God's taught. The nation of Israel got to the point where it wasn't an occasional wandering of the mind. They were going through all of their religious celebration as religious duty rather than in a joy to come before the Lord and worship. And you see what happened was, as they let their hearts be taken by other things, their heart of worship started to disappear. And we see that taking place, and that's what was going on here. And now, the third sign, and this is, a, this is the fruit of when we lose a heart of worship, the third sign of their self-centered living was that they put themselves before integrity. Now, when you have your heart, and something else gets hold of it rather than Jesus Christ, that's when the door opens up for sin to enter in. And that's what happened to the nation of Israel. Look at um, the last part of verse 5, 5b. It says here that they wanted the, you know, the Sabbath to be over, the new moons to be over. Why? To make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales. It goes on in verse 6 and says, so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. What he's talking about here, these are unethical business practices. 
in the last part of verse 5, to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger, they're talking about using different scales. Remember the scales you have like for the weight, you know, like they'd go up or down like this? Well, they would put weights on them, and they would change the weight based on are they buying or selling. So like if they wanted to buy from a supplier, they would change the weight so they would get more wheat and pay less for it, and then they would put a different weight on the scale when they went to sell it to the end consumer, so that way the consumer was getting less wheat, and they were getting the same amount of money for it. And you go throughout the day like that, and all of a sudden, you're making a lot more money because you're, you're buying for less, and you're selling it for more. And it's, it was unethical. And then it goes on, and it says in verse, the end of verse 6, that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. They put the wheat in these big bags. Picture like today, probably the closest thing, like a burlap bag, man. They'd be shoving meat, wheat into that, and then they would just throw in some of the kind of the fill that goes, goes along with it. They'd throw that in there. And think of like the business practices today. You see, we tend to just not jump into gross negligence or um, immoral behavior. It's kind of usually like a little bit of a slide, isn't it? And that's what was happening here. If, um, if our hearts are not right, we end up all of a sudden starting to compromise on business, at business ethics. I, for 10 years before I went into ministry, before I went to seminary, I was in business, and I saw it all the time. And, you know, the little things that we do, think about in our own lives. Maybe it's um, not, you know, not claiming all of our income for taxes purposes. Like I was paid in cash. I don't, nobody will ever know. Maybe it's a matter of, you know, we, we don't tell the customer the whole truth, and we kind of hold something back, and we think, well, I'm not really lying, although I'm not telling them the whole truth. There's little ways that we can compromise, in no matter it is what we do. Maybe you're a student here. We prayed for you guys this morning. And students, you're going to have opportunities where you can cheat. You're going to have opportunities where you could tell, you know, tell a little lie. Did you get your homework done? Oh, yeah, I did it. You know, or you know, whatever it might be, that person next to you, they're not, you know, they kind of leave their answers wide open, and you know they're a smart kid. Well, I could just look over there. But you see what? God is watching all of that. And it's when we compromise in the little things that we move further and further into sin. I want to read you a quote. This is not a Christian quote, but it gives a good perspective on the unethical business world that's out there. This is from um, the best-selling business author, Jim Collins. And he wrote this about the, the crisis of business ethics in, the, in America. Some business executives were part of the malleable masses. These were people who, in the presence of an opportunity to behave differently, got drawn into it, one step after another. If you told them 10 years ahead of time, hey, let's cook the books and all get rich, they would never go along with it. But that's rarely how most people get drawn into activities that they later regret. When you are at step A, it feels inconceivable to jump all the way to step Z, if step Z involves something that is a total breach of your values. But if you go from step A to step B, then step B to step C, then step C to step D, then someday you wake up and discover that you're at step Y. And the move to step Z becomes that much easier. You see, that's how it is. As our heart is given over to the things of this world, rather than to Jesus Christ, it becomes so much easier to compromise a little and then to compromise a little bit more. And what's the end result? That we as believers in Jesus Christ 
look so much more like the world around us than we do like Jesus Christ. As we look at the book of Amos and we take, take well, what, how can I apply these warnings to my life? I say one of them is that we don't compromise, that we know how God wants us to live, and we can, we'll avoid that slippery slope. One other example is that um, in the saying that the integrity in small things matters, the Wall Street Journal put this out. 44% of business executives rank themselves as their most trusted confidant in an ethical situation. 44% of business executives said they trust themselves as their confidant in an ethical situation. Then they asked, what, they asked then they said, who, who would turn to God first when facing with an ethical situation? You know what the number was, the percentage? 3%. 44% turned to themselves. And 3% said they would turn to God first when faced with an ethical situation. You see, we live in a culture that has drifted so far away from God, but we're not the only culture, and we're not the only generation. And God wants us to stand out for the gospel, to live according to his ways, and we're going to look very different than the world around us. And our generation has so much in common with what we're looking at here in Amos. I want to close out as we look at uh, verses 11 through 14. And this gives us a picture now of what's going to happen when that coming judgment comes. But it also paints a pretty bleak picture for their ability to turn back to God after year upon year and generation upon generation rejecting God. Let's pick up in verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, beautiful virgins and the young women will faint from thirst. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan... And as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. I remember I was, I was um, preaching through in chapter 1 in, Am in Amos, and I had talked about, for those who were here, I mentioned that Dan and Bethel were the two religious centers, the false religious centers that were set up in the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's what he's referring to here. Basically, he's talking about in Dan and Bethel, they set up these golden calves, and they told the nation, Jeroboam was the king at the time, and he told the nation, he said, Israel, here is your God. Sounds a lot like what happened with Moses when God, you know, when coming down from the mountain, they built the golden calf. So for all of these generations now, it was probably 150, 170 years prior to this, they have been worshiping these golden calves, these false centers of worship. Their hearts had moved so far away from God. And now God was basically saying, you know, you who have been setting up all of these false places of worship, you've not been worshiping me. I've sent my prophets to you and you've rejected my prophets. The day is coming when judgment is going to come and it's going to be so severe, you're going to be looking for the Lord. But by that time, you will not be able to find me because it's too late. It's a sad place to be, isn't it? That they had all of that opportunity to turn to God. And they chose self-centered living. They chose living, pursuing all these idols in their lives. 
And all of a sudden, calamity comes upon them, and they realize it's too late to turn to the Lord. You know, we can fall into that same thing, because, and we're running out of time as well. Um, I want to just encourage you, if you're here today, and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, so many times we hear people, young people, they think, you know what, well, life is just going to go on and on. I mean, I don't even want to think about death or anything like that. I've got so long to go. You know, even especially as you get into like high school, college, people start to think, you know what, someday, yeah, maybe when I get married and have kids and settle down, then I'll, I'll get serious about God. But for right now, I want to do this and this and this, and it's all self-centered living. Now, what happens? You know, all of a sudden you get married someday and you have kids, and all of a sudden you're trying to juggle a career and kids and toddlers and a marriage, and all of a sudden there's no time for God, and all these years have passed, and your heart is that much further away from the Lord that you look so much more like the culture that you live in than you do as a Christian, and you never end up put, turning your faith over to Jesus Christ. You know, I want to encourage you. You know, people think, well, I'm going to do it someday. I'm going to do it someday. And that day never gets there. And all of a sudden, God takes your life before you've ever done it. What a tragedy that is. What about the rest of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior? You see, for ourselves... You know, God's, God's revealed himself in two ways. He revealed himself through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That was God in the flesh came down and lived among us. When people looked at Jesus Christ, they saw God. God everything Jesus did was a witness to the people of God himself. So when we think about the person of Jesus Christ, that was God revealing himself to us through the Son. Now, the second means that God has revealed himself to us is through his word. And here we are in our generation that we can pick up the Bible at any time and we can read God's message to us from Genesis through Revelation. We have it all here in one book. Do you realize we are one of the few generations in history that has a Bible like this that we can turn to? And how passionate are we for the word of God? You see, up until the, you know, like probably the 1500s, they did not have the printed word. They had to have things that were written out on scrolls. Individual people did not own scrolls of the Bible. It was oral teaching. And then when all of a sudden the printing press came along and they started putting Bibles together, so many cultures, it was outlawed, it was banned, and people didn't have it. And here we are, that we have God's word from all the books of the Bible right together that we can read. You know, we probably have 10 of them at home. And how much time do we spend studying the Word of God? Picture our prophet Amos. Now, can you imagine if you could go back in time, you know, to Amos 2,700 years ago, whatever it was, and you could take a Bible with you, and we'll make the assumption that Amos could read English, and you were able to hand him the Bible and open it up to one of the Gospels and let him read it. Can you imagine what his face must have, would have looked like if he could do that? You see, he couldn't foresee Jesus in all of his glory, and he was faithful to God. But I guarantee you, if Amos could have seen the virgin birth, God himself coming down to this earth, could have read the teachings of Jesus Christ, could have read about the Passion Week, could have read about the crucifixion, and then the resurrection... I think we would have seen this man with tears pouring down his face as he read the good news of this book. And we take it for such granted. 
You know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how can you apply this today? What I want to encourage you to do is to spend time in the Word of God. How many times do I hear people say, well, you know, the kids are in sports and we just, it's, we're just so busy or, you know, my job, I'm traveling all the time and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And you put off Bible study. You don't even take a couple hours a week to be in community studying God's Word with other people. And it gets put off and it gets put off. And the things of this world start to push out the things of God so that how do you expect to be transformed by the Word of God when you're not spending any time in it? See, I don't want it to become religious obligation. What I want to encourage is that as the gospel gets a hold of your heart and you recognize how sinful you are and you recognize what Jesus Christ has done for you, that you are transformed by the gospel so that your desires grow, that you want to be in the Word of God. You see, our worship, I mentioned before, look at how they wandered away from having hearts of worship. Don't let that happen to us. If you are at that point where worship is not that exciting to you, reading God's Word is not that exciting to you, it's, I want to encourage you to get into it because the more you push it aside, that joy is not going to grow. Take the time to get into a Bible study with other people where you can read the Word of God together, where you can encourage one another with what God's Word says because our faith in God has to be based upon the Word of God. And that was a generation in Israel that basically God said to them, I gave you all of these opportunities to find me, and when you want to find me at that day, I will not be there for you. We live in a generation where God is saying, here's my Word. You can find me in it. Study it. Learn it. Not so you get smarter about biblical knowledge. God wants you to read it so you get to know him because he's revealed, revealed himself in this word. And you're not going to get to know God and grow in your understanding and your relationship with God apart from his word. See, we can learn so much from the prophet Amos. And why was it that you know, God sent prophets like Amos to that generation and we don't have prophets like Amos today? The reason is because God put down in this book everything that we need to know for salvation and everything we need to know for sanctification, becoming like Jesus Christ. So we don't need a prophet like Amos today. What we need is to pick up this book and grow in our understanding of who God is and in our relationship with him. I want to um, just encourage us one thing. There was, I want to close by saying this. There's, um, General Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. And he was once asked and said, you know, what, what's the reason for all of the success that you've had? And his answer when he was interviewed, he said simply this, Jesus Christ has all of me. That's all he said. What was the reason for your success? Jesus Christ has all of me. Are we able to make that statement today? Think about our heart. What's the priority in your heart? Is it Jesus Christ or is it something else? And if you were to make that statement, sadly, I think a lot of us might have to say, Jesus has some of me, but the world has the rest. And as we close, I want to encourage you to fall in love with God through his book. As we look at the prophet Amos, realize that many of these warnings that were given to Israel would apply to us today. And let's live in such a way that we could truly say, 
Jesus Christ has all of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your book, for the wisdom that you've given. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that as a church family, we would be a church that's all about Jesus. I pray that as individuals, we will be able to say, Jesus Christ has all of me. Father, it's hard to do that. There's so many things within this world and our culture that are pulling us in many directions. Lord, there's so many things for, that are competing for our attention and for our love. And I pray, Lord, that you would help each person here to resist temptation, that they could turn to you, and Lord, that they could give their hearts to you and seek after you through your word, grow in their walk with you, and Lord, live as believers that can truly say, Jesus Christ has all of me. Lord, we thank you for this time we've had together, and I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and enable this to happen. In Jesus' name, amen. We encourage as we leave today, live in such a way that you can say, Jesus Christ has all of me, and let the world outside know it too. Amen. <laughs>